today I'm having a gas with Crispin Hands, who is the founder, director, creative chief, putter out of fires over at Lion's Head Pro. I'm also the janitor. It's uh... also the janitor. It looks like you might be a Steinberg user as well. I sure am. Uh, we are currently uh, recording to Nuendo. Nice. So you and Hans Zimmer, you have that in common uh, and a bunch of other stuff as well, as in you've both done work for Disney and, you know, other big studios. I don't dare compare to, you know, his lord and uh, masterness, but um, yeah, uh, I've actually been in Hans's studio. Um, sadly, while not, I've been in his studio like three or four times while he was not there. Um, because I was working with, uh, you know, the first time yeah. I was working with Tre Trevor Morris, um, who's the composer for Vikings. And then um, later on, I was working with uh, Ramin Jawadi, who did Game of Thrones and Westworld. And yeah, um, Ramin's fantastic. So we, we worked together on uh, Gears 5. Um, yeah, that was a lot of, lot of fun. Uh, he's an wow. incredible, I mean, he's such an amazing composer, but he's, <clears throat> he's just also a really, really lovely guy. Um, and a great collaborator. It's like, he, he, uh, he certainly taught me um, to up my game uh, in terms of how I interface with clients and things like that. He's just, he's such an incredible professional. This is good because I want to talk a lot more about this as we, as the, as the show goes on. Um, a lot of uh, the things, you, you may have found this in your career, that a lot of the things that people don't teach you about one don't prepare you for is less the composition of music, less the production of sound. It's much, much more how to deal with the business, how to find projects, how to deal with projects that are ongoing. So we want to talk about all of that, but the cool stuff first. So you've been at Remote Control Studios with Ramin. Um, am I saying that right? Ramin. Ramin. And obviously it was when Hans wasn't there because the joke kind of in the film scoring sort of industry these days is that Hans is never there at the moment because he's always out touring, play, being a rock star, playing his scores, you know, at arenas worldwide. Is that, are you going to be going for that, Crispin? Is that your destination? <laughs> um, I would love, I would dearly love to see some of the music that we do here be performed live on stage because we've worked with some truly incredible musicians in the recording of it. I probably will never make an appearance on stage other than to be like, Hey, these people are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening, because I'm a terrible musician. Oh, so, right. So you're going to be the MC, and you can program stuff well, but playing live is a different story. Yeah, I I've never, you know, I can I can play okay on the keyboard, and I can play okay on a bunch of things just to get the ideas out. But I've never really, um, probably because I'm horribly lazy, I've never really put in the practice to become a good musician. I'm I'm always just really impatient, and I want to I want to hear the thing that's in my head, so I you know, play it into the, um, you know, into the sequencer and then I fiddle with yeah. it till it sounds right and correct all my terrible playing and all so that. So you were a synth guy yeah. first? Yeah, I, I was sort of, um, you know, I used to fancy myself a bit of a piano player and, and, uh, and I was never very good. Um, but yeah, I, I chose to be a synth guy because Long time ago, the reason I got into music is because I, I met a guy at a party who was playing guitar and he's playing all this stuff that I liked. And, and I was just like, man, what can I do to be in this guy's band? 
Uh, I was like 18 or 19 at the time. And, right. Uh, so, you know, he's attracting attention at the party. And... Yeah. And, and it was just like sitting and hanging with him and singing along was like one of the best experiences I'd ever had in my life. Like it just felt really good. And he was really gracious about it. And we're still best friends 30 plus years later. Uh, my best friend, Dino DiNicolo, and he's, he's an incredible musician. So I never got to be in his band um, unless you count like, you know, singing uh, up on stage with him a couple of times. Um, but I have produced his last two albums um, and we, we do lots of stuff together. And, you know, I'll, I'll hire him on to my track sometimes to play bass because he's a killer bass player and he's a great guitarist. And um, yeah, he's a consummate musician. I am definitely so, not. So the, the, the trade is happening. The reciprocity is kicking in. He brought you into the world of music by playing guitar. And then you have been able to build this machine that you are running and use that to help him produce his stuff. Yeah, pretty That's much. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, the one thing I pick, I'm picking up from you, which I see the more and more I, I, I do these talks and do these podcasts. Um, and for people at home, by the way, I might be looking... I'm trying to always look at wherever Crispin can actually see me. And I think that's here because I've got a laptop yep. down here. With yeah, that's FaceTime. perfect. Yeah, that's okay, perfect. There you are. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's no linear path, right? Um, there's not. You, you started out just wanting to be in the band. And at no point were you there going, I, I hope to be, you know, running the, uh, you know, a, a very highly sought after sound design and music studio and video games. You know, those two, that was not a straight path. And I, I don't want to do the full, how did you end up there? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, because I, I, I was just listening to you on another podcast where that's kind of covered. So I don't want to uh, interrupt that territory. But, but you get the thing, right? It's like um, one thing that can really deter young people is the idea that, ah, this next step isn't going to take me directly to my end destination. So I, I only want to do things that take me there. What do you mean? What do you make of that? Yeah, that, that couldn't, you're you're bang on and uh and it's just straight up not true the you know and it's funny because my direction changed you know for a while i was like i'm gonna be a rock star and i i even had my own band for a bit um and uh i was in a couple different bands and we were terrible or i was terrible and let's be honest and you know but at the same time i was working at a law firm just so i could have a day job and pay for gear and eat and have pay rent and stuff. And it, it, during working at the law firm, I had a comp side background before I quit college and went into music. Um, and I saw an opportunity to further stuff. So I, I started learning the IT and this is early nineties. So IT was a very different game. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I just learned, I learned more about, you know, things like accounting and filing and just running an office. Um, and uh, it really helped every single thing. If you look at it the right way, every single thing can contribute to your later success. If you yes. keep your mind open and you stay focused and you say, you know, you don't lose sight of the goal, even if the goal might be shifting. My goal was always intrinsically to move forward into music in some way. And then, um, yeah, I remember playing, I think, I think they'd loaned me a computer from the office and, and it had a CD-ROM drive, which was a big deal in 1994. Because in 1994, also, they loaned you a computer because the idea of owning your own computer was like a rich luxury kind of thing. It was, it was, you know, yeah, I mean, well, it, the funny thing was is, 
Yeah, actually, it was about the same cost for a decent one as it is today. But back then, you know, that amount of money was a much bigger deal because, yeah. you know, inflation has totally changed the way our dollars are. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was it was wild. And, and I had uh, I bought a copy of this game called Myst on a CD-ROM, M-Y-S-T. Uh, yeah. You may be familiar with it, and it blew I've my mind. I've got Riven on this PC down oh, here. Well. Oh my god, amazing! Yeah. <laughs> um, and it blew my mind. And I and then it had this little postage stamp sized QuickTime as a bonus on it, and you could watch a making of that included stuff about sound. And I just I became obsessed, and I was like, and I called up my buddy who I helped on a on his student film, and I was like, we gotta we gotta make video games. Like, look at this, and. Uh, yeah, and and so um, a friend of mine helped me get a job as a QA tester at EA, and uh, and I just worked my way in from there. And you know, the the first thing is getting your foot in the door somewhere, um, making connections because it's really all about who you know, and far more important than like, hey, you know, what's your knowledge is how much to people like working with you and how open-minded are you how quick are you to learn um how hard do you work all yeah. of those things um and i believe that if you've got the right attitude and the right mindset you can learn anything yeah. um you know within reason except apparently from my case not how to be a musician yeah but, of course uh, you know well, yeah. again you know that's within the confines of it's which it's what sacrifices are you yeah. willing to undertake isn't it and you know you you've been open i'm basically the same uh the sacrifice of long bouts of practice is not one we're all willing to make. Being on your own for like two, three hours a day, just uh, contending with the stuff that you're not good enough. It's a quite painful yeah. place to be. So pro musicians are really good at just standing in the blast of that like pain. But yeah, for me, <laughs> that's a great way to put it there. Yeah, they, they really have a high pain tolerance. Mine, my focus was very much, I, I saw the path through learning to, you know, understand the gear and the production and produce and because I never I I think I was just always impatient like if I was just playing piano or if I was just Mm -hmm. playing guitar I was like yeah but I want to hear drums right now and I want to hear all these other things and I'm like how can I do all that and uh and I wasn't getting that from just being a musician I wasn't even getting it in a band um so I I realized that you know once and this was early, you know, again, early 90s, the tech for, um, you know, sequencers and things like that was still fairly nascent, like they first came out in the 80s, but it was still pretty rudimentary. Um, but it it gave me the opportunity, hey, oh, I've got, you know, a 486 computer with Cubase on it. And Cubase didn't have any audio at the time, it was purely MIDI. Um, and I can get that to command all five voices that my synth yes. can do. And then I added one little extra synth module and oh, now I've got another like four voices. Yeah. Wow. I've got a whole nine instruments that I can play at once. And that yeah. that was really satisfying to me too. And I guess that was probably my first inkling that I was headed to be a composer because as a composer, we write for all the instruments, you know, and, yes. and, uh, and that that's, I guess that's my focus just started because of that impatience with wanting to hear what was in my head. You know what? I'll, I'll bounce something off you here because how much of a how much of a mix engineer are you? Have you had to be, uh, you know, learn how to do all that for your career? You know, it's funny. I I resisted it for a while, 
to my detriment. Um, but I realized after a few years in that the mix is just another instrument, you yes. know, production, production. And so mix and production became one of my key instruments. Uh, and I, you know, that's a, that's a lifelong learning journey. You know, I mix a lot of my own stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm quite picky about it, but I also hire mixers because they know the, they know it better than me. They, they've been, that's all they do. So, yeah. you know, I want to hear what they're doing and how they approach it. And, yeah. um, but yeah, I, I absolutely, um, I think, you know, there's, there's a division sometimes of, of, or more traditionally there, there's often a division of composer, arranger, orchestrator, if we're talking about, you know, more classical music or film scoring, et cetera. Um, and to me, composer is just one part of the whole picture. So I, mm-hmm. I really enjoy composing and arranging and orchestrating. And I will hire an orchestrator to take my orchestration and make sure that the instruments can play things properly. And, you know, if they need to transpose stuff or whatever, yep. that's awesome. But when it comes to like making sure that, hey, you know what, I've set up the divisi of these strings uh, in a certain way, I do that because I, I want to hear things voiced a certain way. Yes. Um, and, and, but I do love working with a good orchestrator uh, who will give like input on stuff and give ideas. Um, that's really exciting because, yeah, any, um, anytime you work with a fellow creative who knows what they're doing, you're going to learn. And that's, yeah. you know, that's, that's my favorite thing about this industry. Um, not just music, but, but games especially, you never, ever stop learning. You can't. And if you think no. you know it all, as soon as you think you're an expert, that's when you're done. You're dead. That's when the next person's going to get the next job. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's, uh, there's just, I mean, every time I turn around, and it's a classic cliche, you know, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, it's 100% true. Yeah. So you you said um, a few things that uh, I will pick up on that. And one is, I think it's like the, the second time in 15 minutes, you know, you've pointed out that um, you're one of the thi- one of the things that has contributed to your success has been always um, assuming that anywhere you are, there is something vital that you need to learn. There's something that this what you're doing right now can teach you. You know, you said you were in a law firm at first, and that taught you how to operate the machinations of a business, how to do invoicing, how to, you know, make sure everything is, uh, all the things that we don't want to think about as sound engineers and and as composers, all the non-cool stuff is absolutely essential to keeping you afloat and making sure that everyone's wages can get paid and all of that stuff. So, you know, that's the first place you mentioned that, that everything's a learning experience. But the other thing absolutely is the case that, um, working with people who really know what they're doing is exciting. Because, you know, I imagine every time you work with, you know, you are, I don't know if it sounds like you work with one orchestrator, but every time I work with a great mixer, I'm like, how have you done that? I've been trying to do that for so long. How yeah, did you do that? Thing? So yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've, I've been uh, really like, you know, and we have the same thing with sound design. And so, you know, music is part of my focus, but I'm also an audio director and, I, yes. and I'm a sound designer, although I do less sound design these days um, just because I there's only so much time in the day and I have yep. really phenomenal sound designers on my team. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and sometimes, you know, 
they'll deliver something and I'll be like, how did you do that? We yes. got to talk. That's so yes. cool, you know? And, and same, same with the mixers. Um, yeah, there's some really spectacular mixing talent and engineering and, and, you know, just hearing the way they approach it. But it's, you know, what's really cool is, is it's like some of my more junior people will do stuff and I'll be like, how did you do that? Yeah. yeah. That's really cool, you know, or their approach to stuff. And, um, you know, I have, well, you saw Matt in the background. Um, so Matt O'Connor and I have uh, Dan Reyes and I have Shane um, Johnson, AKA Sonic Johnson. And these guys came through Lion's Head. Uh, their, their kind of on-ramp has been to assist me. Um, and one of the things that's been so cool is they can read music. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a self-taught hack. So, so they are able to explain stuff to me. And they're, and they're like properly educated. Like, you know, Matt just graduated from USC. Um, Dan came out of VFS, but he was also doing like music elsewhere. Um, so the, the way, you know, they, they know the names of chords that I don't know, you know, yeah. it's like, it's, it's really cool. So I get to learn from them and, and I see their approach to doing stuff and the way they talk about things. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm picking up little, little bits. And, uh, but you know, what's, what's super cool is the, you know, the reason I brought them on is because they displayed from the get go, this real drive, passion, determination, very polite persistence um, and uh, and this thoroughness and attention to detail. And you can just tell they really care. And they really, they demonstrated that they really liked what we're doing and they cared about that. And uh, and that was like, I was like, okay, you're in, you know, this is, yeah. let's get you in. And, um, you know, two of those guys have already kind of graduated into, they're going into being sound designers now. Um, yeah. So one of the things I like to do is say, you know, if you want to come on and be a composer in your junior, um, it's going to be a journey because the, the challenge is there's, there are so many composers um, and music producers. Um, the, the number of composers and music producers, you know, outstrip the number of actual available jobs yeah. um, by a factor of probably like a hundred yeah. or a thousand to one. It's I I don't know the numbers, but it's crazy. So how many emails very, do you get a week saying Crispin can I have a job? So many. And um, you know, but one of the things that really helped propel me, because I was not, you know, I was nowhere near good enough to be doing music for the games when I first started at Yay, um, was okay, well, I go through as a sound designer, you know, and I learned sound design because there's more work than there are good sound designers, you know? So it's a really great path. And, and this comes back to the learning things that help you if you have your mind open to it. Um, mm -hmm. And being a sound designer for so many years, it taught me so much, not just about, hey, how to really manipulate sound, which is super important and how to like, you know, populate the different frequency ranges and not have yes. stuff build up and all those things. Uh, how to make things punchy, how to make things interesting, you know, how to voice stuff. But it taught me uh, the really important things about how to integrate things, how we integrate things into the game and how there's such a, um, there's so much contention for resources in a game, you know, contention for RAM, contention for CPU cycles, 
um, all those things and how we manage that. And it applies to music too. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there's contention for disk space uh, often still, you know, especially on a system like the Nintendo Switch or even more so on a mobile game. Yeah. Um, you know, there's so you have to be really judicious and and think carefully about how you're going to put together your music and how you're going to make it fit and what sacrifices you're going to make. Um, but in addition to all of that, and, and also, sorry, just quickly, how you're going to be inventive about your implementation to make things interactive in the music. Mm, uh, and right. of course, the same with the sound design. I mean, when I was at EA, we were working on Need for Speed, uh, like the first five of them on, and on the Sony PlayStation 1. And that thing, I think, I think it had 512K of sound RAM. Um, okay. Yeah, actually, I, that might be higher than it was. I can't remember. But the upshot was that our player engines had to fit into, I believe it was either 80K or 160K of RAM. Um, right, so just for someone, someone like me who is uh, a bit less educated about these things. Sure. 80K... 160K, this is more or less a tenth of a megabyte. Is that right? Right, Correct. okay. So yeah. all of the audio for all of the games that I grew up with, because I'm a Nintendo 64 guy. Oh, yeah, uh, there was even less RAM on that. So you're fitting everything and all these wonderful soundtracks. I spoke to yeah. a musicologist for about an hour on the podcast about yeah. o Ocarina of Time. And I'm like, oh, yeah. so that's all being fit into about 80K? Oh, it's like, yeah. I can't. I actually don't know what the RAM was on the N sixty four, and it was dependent on like there were different cart sizes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it it was very very little, much less than the PlayStation one. Um, right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and so all the music you hear on the N sixty four is it's a it's a bunch of samples stored in, and then MIDI plays those samples in real time. Um, whereas on the PlayStation one, for the most part, we were like, Hey, we have a CD now, so yeah. we'll stream actual like wave files off mm -hmm. the, uh, except they'd be compressed. Uh, so they were compressed using Sony's compression. Um, the analogy but, we used for the layman on the last one was that it's, it's, it's like, instead of flip, putting a sound recording into the game, tell me if this is right. It's more mm -hmm. like you're putting the sheet music into the code of the game and Correct. then it's being played. Right. Okay. That, so that's what it was on the N64 and some PS1 games actually. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, like, uh, games like Crash Bandicoot, that was all MIDI. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, games like Need for Speed, we had, you know, full full wave like stereo music that was streaming off the disc um, yeah. from a compressed file. So think MP3, but yeah. we didn't have MP3 at that time. MP3. Even lossier. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Um, and we, we, so normally the music would get recorded at 44 kilohertz um, and then it would be put onto the, the disc at 22 um, and okay, then compressed from there. So you've got half a generation down to begin with. Yeah, you, you, so, and I mean, it still sounded okay. It's funny. We still get occasional fan mail for music we did in like 1997 for the Need for yeah. Speed. It's wild. Um, mostly from Russia. Team on EA. Yeah, yeah. So myself, um, Rom DePrisco, uh, yeah, a, a bunch of the crew, Saki Kaskis, uh, who's sadly no longer with us. Um, yeah, the, the all of us who did music on that, we, you know, 
people still talk about it. And it's, it's so funny because, I mean, well, Ram and Saki did amazing stuff. I was just fledgling. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I what just got about, lucky like, with a couple of 23, 24 at the time? Uh, I think I was 25, right. maybe. Um, I'm trying to remember. It would have been, yeah, I was around 25, 26. Okay, um, so this is like one of your entry-level gigs, Need for Speed. Yeah, yeah. And this was after spending a year in QA just so I could get, like, led into the audio department. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was wild. Um, but again, you know, back to what about learning at the time, it was so much about um, not just learning the ins and outs of the tech, which is super important. So, you know, if you want to get into game audio or game music, learn implementation. That's the number one thing you can learn because so many people don't have it. And if you yeah. have that, you have a major advantage. Okay, but, so should we just, should we, should we I, I don't want to cut you off, but I feel like we should probably spend a good 10 minutes just going into that area, implementation, because to someone who hasn't even grazed the surface, which, I, you know, I, uh, we happen to have done at Gas, I get yeah. what you're saying is, we're talking about middleware, right? We're talking about getting your sounds into the engine of the game in a way that takes that responsibility away from the developers. Yeah, and it's, you know... Um, so yeah, we, you, we could talk about middleware, we could talk about FMOD and WISE, or even Fabric. Um, and then there's some studios that, that have their own bespoke stuff. Um, and then, but there's also Unreal and Unity have their own audio stuff built in. Right. Um, and Unreal's is becoming more and more fully fledged. Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, my favorite combination is WISE and Unreal 5. Okay. Like the, together, you can do really incredible stuff. Can you so give an that, example of what it is about those two dovetailing is really, really good? Um, Wise is really, really great for getting a whole bunch of audio in and tuning it and making it sound good and react in certain ways, regardless of whether you're using Unity or Unreal. It's, it's fantastic for all of that. Um, and it's, it's really mature. I mean, it's been in development for a really long time. Um, mm-hmm. And they get it, you know, but... Unreal is amazing because of blueprints. You can roll your own stuff. Um, so you can roll your own logic without a programmer for how you're choosing to fire off the sounds. You can hook up your own sound, sound events. You can, you know, it's really easy to place all your sounds in the environment um, and then give them behaviors based on game logic without writing a single line of code. You're, you're doing what kind it. of behaviors are we talking? Uh, so, for instance, you can be like, cool, I'm going to change this sound of this emitter based on time of day or weather, you know? Yeah, yeah okay, I'm with you. You know, or, um, you know, we've got wind uh, that kind of comes and goes through the thing. And we could even just be like, hey, we're going to roll an entire wind system ourselves and we could set it up. And we can have it so that when the wind reaches certain peaks, certain emitters are hooked up to things like signs and flagpoles and stuff, and they make more noise as the wind gets louder, you know? And that's something that if you, you know, have a reasonable idea of what you're doing in Unreal, you can just roll that yourself. Right, and um, so but help me as well with, we keep hearing the term roll. Is that is that like a, a little neologism uh, industry term or? Yeah, I, sure, I, I mean, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's uh, widely used, but it's basically you can, you can script the stuff yourself yeah. relatively simply. Um, and then, you know, once it's all good, you know, you can go to a programmer and be like, okay, hey, is this okay? Or is it, you know, like weighing down the CPU and do you want to, you know, write 
hard code it so it's optimized. Yeah. But uh, does it help to have a sort of background in a programming language? You know, I, uh, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah. it's not essential, and that's one of the beauties of Unreal is you don't know how to code. You don't have to know how to code. It's it's always helpful because it helps you. Knowing how to code helps you think about the way, um, like the topography uh, of of you know RAM versus CPU and um, disk and how things talk to each other and how to how to write you know one of the most important things you learn when programming is how to write an algorithm how to come up with an algorithm for how this logic is going to work and then you know you make the code and then you have to optimize it and so much of what we do is optimization so it really helps you get into that mindset um, and I I won't pretend that I'm a coder I learned some code I learned some um, assembler and I learned some C and some Pascal way back when and, and I you know I've done Lua on a, on a few games it's like uh, but it's very like my first you know my first program you know two finger typing code for me do you have so, a uh, do you have like a team? Do you have a department that do just do that? That yes. just do the implementation? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We we well. So we have both sound designers and composers who do some of their own implementation, and I always feel like that's a really powerful thing because if you if you're already thinking about how you're implementing it and you're working on that and you're tuning that, then you go back to your DAW and you're designing the sound and you're you're designing it directly for how you're implementing it. So that makes a really big difference. Right. Yeah. So the actual, the implementation and you, you said optimization as well. And I'm yeah. guessing that that kind of amounts to troubleshooting in some sense. So yes and no. So troubleshooting is different. That's, you know, every game, every piece of software has bugs and, and every single game that you've ever played ships with bugs it, because yeah. you can never fix them all. And what happens is you take care of the, what we call the priority ones first, um, the, the things that break the game badly or, you know, crash or whatever, and or other ones that are really noticeable or really painful. Um, and then you go for the priority twos, which are like, oh, this is frustrating. We got to fix this. And then the priority threes are like, oh, that's a little bit of a blemish, you know, and so <laughs> forth. And you do as many of those as you can before you're cut off and they ship it, you know, because the, the ship date is the ship date, generally speaking. It's it's funny because in my mind, what you're describing as priority three is the kind of thing that like normally makes me go, this game sucks. Like they haven't fixed this, you know. You know, sometimes that'll be a priority two that slipped through the cracks. Um, right, yeah. One of the challenges is that, you know, as developers, we're trying to cram as much goodness into the game as possible because we want players to love it. We're gamers, you know, and we hate it when a game sucks. Yeah. Uh, and the worst feeling is when you work on a game for, you know, two, three, four years and you ship it and you're like, that sucks. You know, you just feel like you wasted a whole bunch of your life. Um or like you put all this love into it and then something slips through the crack that breaks it and then people are not enjoying it. And you're like, oh man, we put so much work into that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and people, it's funny, I see, you know, YouTube comments or comments on forums and Twitter or whatever, Reddit about being like, oh, why can't they make this game? These guys don't know what they're doing. They're idiots. Like you have no idea how hard these teams yeah. work. And, yeah, and, and how, how many people there are. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. And there are just so many forces working against you at all times, and any one of them can trip you up. Um, you know, I worked on a game called Impossible Creatures way back when, like 20 years ago. And I was really proud. It was my first game where I was audio director and composer, and I did a, the majority of the sound design, blah, 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 wrote a whole, wrote most of the music except for the main theme, 
which was done by a guy named Jeremy Soule. And we shipped it. Um, and I rolled off the project because uh, I was a contractor. And after I rolled off, a programmer changed something in the game that he thought was innocuous. And it caused, your, this is an RTS, so you had the henchmen, and it caused the henchmen to constantly spam the phrase, the critters are under attack. Oh, and no. in every review, that was what they talked about. And I was absolutely heartbroken. Because uh, you're like, there's one bit of like, so they've got this big network of th things that are interacting. Mm -hmm. And one of them was slightly tuned differently. And that caused the whole thing to do this. Like, yeah. And no, and, and he, you know, he didn't test his changes against that. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't go and listen to like the effect of that. And maybe he didn't even know to, it might've been like some designer asked him to tune one little thing. Um, but it broke my audio and, yeah. and I was, I was already gone. I was already onto something else and I couldn't like the contract was over, so I couldn't work the on it. The door's locked and you can't get back. Yeah, I, I, and I, I, didn't, I didn't even know about it until I started seeing the reviews come in and I just, yeah. my, I, was, I was like getting stabbed. I was just like so gutted. And so I made, you know, I made a real um, promise to myself that I would never, I would do everything in my power to make sure that that never happened again. And, uh, yeah. and so that, that leads me to, you know, kind of back to what I was saying before a little bit about the other things you learn when you're in game development uh, and, and that you learn, especially as a sound designer, because as a sound designer, you're much more involved in the day-to-day -day, um, than a composer where you like, you know, you spend a week or whatever writing a track and kind of throw it over the fence a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, you learn how to work with teams um, and more specifically, you learn how dev teams are organized and how they, um, you know, how different departments tend to prioritize things and how they tend to think, um, and how it's really important for you to make sure that you make it clear to them, um, A, that you're there to support them and make their stuff as cool as possible, but B, that, you know, you have to be on top of what they're doing because sometimes these little things they do, they will break your work. Yes. Or that, you so know, you, and, you actually need to understand how the different departments actually interact, not just that yes. they are there, but that because obviously I'm speaking with enormous layman kind of alarms going off here that, you know, I'm not part of this world. But um, in any complex organization, that interaction that we described, that kind of, you know, this ba counterbalance is uh, is is a factor, you know. So I'm in. Yeah. Um, I'm more in the. I, I, we work in advertising, post production. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's similar things to use composition, sound design, post production, mixing it all together. And what you know, you find that the people who work with uh, studios like us all the time are still, for instance, unclear about the distinction between mixing the music and mixing the music with the sound and the voice. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, well, you know, you're doing a mix. How come it's not mixed? It's like, no, that's... And so you know that you've got to be very clear with your communication so yeah. that that gets planned into the work pipeline early enough so that it can all get finished on time. And you're doing stuff like this, but in a more complex way with people who, I don't know, uh, design the environments or, you know, what, what, what can go wrong? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I made... Well, I've made a lot of mistakes, many of them daily, 
But the, oh, in the early years, one of my biggest mistakes was I was so focused on doing the best that I possibly could for audio mm -hmm. that I didn't, I don't think I had the right amount, enough compassion for the other um, disciplines and the other departments and what they were doing. And so sometimes this I'd kind be, of don't you understand how I do this kind of thing? Well, it's more it's more like, hey, you're breaking my sound, you know, like, yes, you know, like, like, no, we got to get this right. And like making a big fuss and like, you know, like, no, we've got to have these resources, blah, blah, blah. And it is important to fight for stuff. Um, but but the fight gets far easier when you when you look at when you look at it and communicate it through the lens of we're making you know, design gameplay is absolutely king. It's paramount. Um, and the, and story, you know, those are the two, you know, king and queen. Um, they are And paramount. everything serves those two things. Yeah. And, and if, you know, you might be like, hey, but I made this really cool sound. I want to hear <laughs> it. If that's not serving gameplay, if it's not serving um, story, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. But that's that's just you. Like that's you and your ego. So yeah. the the most important thing, and and ultimately, here's the other thing that's an even more important thing. You know, as and it's it's a hard lesson to learn as a you know as an artist. I use air quotes there. Um, the, the the most important thing is that we the players are loving what's happening and that they're that they're coming back for more and that they're telling their friends. And that we're selling copies because if you don't sell enough copies of the game, the studio shuts down because it's yeah. really expensive to make these games. It costs yes. so much money. Um, and so it's really important. The way we think about it now is, yeah, gameplay and story, absolutely. And in tandem with that, how are we making, you know, the sound, the sound design, the sound effects how are they super signature and iconic? How are they very clean and legible? And also it's the same with the music, you know, how are we either setting a really nice vibe that supports everything that's going on without getting in the way? Or how are we, you know, in a, in specific focused moments saying, Hey, we're, we've created a theme. And every time you hear this theme, you know, that it's something about this. Um, and it's, it's telling you that even if you're not like consciously aware that like, oh, there's that theme, this thing's happening, you're subconsciously, you tie it together and you're like, oh, this is about this character or this arc or this conflict or this overall situation. Um, yep. So that's, that's something. And I actually get a huge amount of joy out of doing that when, when composing and, and like really thinking about, you know, how because you know, if you have too many themes, then it becomes kind of like, it's hard for people to connect to it and relate to it. So you have mm -hmm. to sort of decide like, okay, I want, you know, two or three, maybe four or five, like really strong themes, depending on how big or how long the story is. Um, and they're going to connect to certain things. And then, you know, beyond that, you have like uh, different instrumentation and different vibes for different areas or environments of the world or parts of the story. And you can take it, you can take any theme, you can make it happy or triumphant. You can make it sad. You can make it ominous. You know, you can make it scary. You can make it, you know, lonely or rejected. That's, that's the beauty of music, you know, especially if you have a theme that's 
flexible. And that's one of the other challenges is you have to come up with a flexible theme that can, that can do all those things. And I, I have to tell you, working with Ramin Jawadi and hearing what he was doing really, really nailed that one home for me. Um, he's an absolute master at that. So it, it changed the way I wrote after that. Watching him on Gears of War. Yeah, yeah. And it's because he, so I was the music director on that Gears, on Gears 5. Um, so basically he and I, like, I, I kind of like mapped out, hey, here are the themes that we want and what we want them to mean. Can you go write these? And so when you're a music with, director, it's more like a creative director role. It's like you're correct. you're setting the landscape. Okay. Yeah, and I and then I would also set up. I'd, it was a little bit technical as well in that I would I would come up with the design of, hey, how are we going to implement and um, manipulate this music in game based on what the player is doing and where they are and what's happening. So s- something as simple as like, hey, we've just walked into a new area and the music changes to reflect that. And we'll think about things like, you know, in Gears 5, you go through a whole bunch of areas that you went through in Gears 2. So we actually like kind of Easter egged a bunch of the Gears 2 themes and music in what we were doing there. Uh, And some of that I wrote myself um, because, you know, I kind of, I I wrote about an hour of the music in Gears 5 uh, because we wanted Ramin to focus on, you know, you only get so much budget uh, to work with. And Ramin is one of the most sought after composers in the world. So, you know, we could, we could work with a certain amount of music from him, uh, which he delivered and it was spectacular. Um, and then for like the, the extra little bits of dressing here and there, I just did that myself. Um, but it was, it was cool because I would, you know, run with some of his themes or I would run with some of the themes written by Steve Jablonski and uh, Kevin Riepel um, from the earlier Gears. Uh, and and I'd work those into the environment so that you kind of got these echoes or ghosts from the past as you're walking yeah. through. That's really awesome. It's uh, also um, there's something kind of just amusing about the image of the musical director going, okay, well they can't afford Ramin, so I'm just going to have to fill this with some, you know, like you know the inversion of authority there. So I I want to I want to be kind of clear. It's not that they couldn't afford. It's just that we were given a certain budget of a number of minutes and like this is what you get and Ramin's busy too so it's like he only has time for so much Mm -hmm. Um, and so basically beyond two hours of music anything else we want you know we we have to roll it and uh, uh, yeah in a a motion picture you know there'll be have you ever done motion picture or has it always been games no I've done I've done film and tv Um, yeah and I yeah go ahead I, I, I I'm very interested to hear your experiences well you know that you're typically a supervisor and the composer or just the supervisor will spot the media and say, this is yeah. where we need music, this is where we need music. Is it the same with games? That's the first question. Do, do you play the experience and go, ah, this is going to need this? Or do you start much earlier, way before you can actually get into it? Great question. And it really depends on the game. For Gears 5, we started a lot earlier. And, and you know the thing is that it's not like they go and shoot the game and all of a sudden you have all this stuff it's like they have to build all the environments they they build the characters they mocap the characters and they they capture their performances but that's ongoing throughout the entire development um and you know they'll build a level and they'll play through and and you know they'll change it until it plays well and those changes can be quite dramatic um, but what we do is we go hey generally speaking we're going to map out a general story 
And these are the general environments that we think we're going to want so that the artists can start building the art for those environments. Um, but knowing that the geometry is going to change quite a bit and the final art isn't going to happen until much further down the line. Um, but, you know, we have like, uh, what's it, uh, concept artists yeah. who will be like, here's a picture of what this, you know, what we want to shoot for the landscape and the art director will you know, work with them to like really hone in on that. And then they'll go, cool. Yes. This is kind of our North star for say the, you know, the, the desert, uh, levels. This is what this wants to feels like. Um, and so the art direction is kind of locked in and committed to from early on. Easy. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's so, so quote unquote, the, the art, it, the art direction is established, but like all things in games, it's, it's, it's amorphous because if you say, you know, no one can see the future. Um, and if you're the art director and be like, this is what we're doing and that's it. And we're not changing anything. You've, you've stuck yourself in a box. And as you develop, you, you might suddenly realize like, hey, you know what? Actually, there's a problem with the story that we thought was going to work here. It's not going to work. And we actually have to change this level to make this, you know, this part of story connect to this other part properly, or the gameplay just doesn't feel right. Or it's just, it's just not a fun environment. So we're going to change it, you know, and I, I remember hearing, I had friends who worked on um, the Uncharted games and the Last of Us games. Yeah. And they'd build entire levels and spend months or even years working on them and then sometimes throw them out. And yeah. so it's just what we, we actually threw out a part of a level, a pretty big part of a level on Gears 5. And I was bummed because I thought it was awesome. Yeah. Um, but it, they, they had to make decisions. Again, gameplay and story are paramount, you know? Yeah. And, and also it's a question sometimes of like, yeah, okay, that's cool for gameplay, but there's problems and it's going to take longer to solve these problems um, and make it good than we have. And you, you want the experience to be as good as possible. So you have to, you have to kill your baby. Sometimes you have to throw that out and you're like, we don't have time to make that as good as it deserves to be for the players. Um, so it's, it's, there's a lot of heartbreak that happens in development. So it's like, that's, that's why I'm, I'm always kind of like, oh, guys, give us a break when, when you see people complaining on YouTube or whatever. Yeah. It's like, we've already been through the ringer to get you this yes. much, you know? It's, um, it's an experience. And I, I get it, you know, like, like we build this for the players. And, and so at the same time, I'm like, I love that you're so passionate about this, right? So it's, it's such a, it's such a double-edged sword. It's like, I love that you're so passionate and that you want it to be better. And like, in some cases, you know, you see a comment and you're like, yeah, we wish we could have done that, you know, or like, hey, that's actually not a bad idea. But the, there's so many forces at play um, that Do you know any of the guys so. on, uh, on Battlefield at EA? Um, I used to, yeah, it depends which one, cause there's been a number. I, I knew a bunch of people on, sorry, the Star Wars Battlefront. Um, no, sorry. I mean, uh, Battlefield. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, I knew a bunch oh, of the sorry. audio team. I, I knew a bunch of the audio team that was on Battlefield. Uh, I don't know if they're all still the same, um, but I, I knew a few of them. Yeah. But really I amazing team. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, more than I realized, I'd taken a long hiatus from gaming because when I was growing up, gaming was still the thing you shouldn't do while you should be doing homework. Yeah. And, you know, so I checked out around 16, which was 2011. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. And then because I came back a few years later, and one of my best friends is a serious gamer. And I saw, you know, not only the landscape transformed, and now this was this, you know, huge monolithic industry eclipsing film and, and all the rest of it. Um, but also, that 
audio and sound precisely affected the gameplay way more than I realized now. So, you know, uh, my mate Chris, he plays ba- uh, Battlefield, and he's like, mostly I'm listening a lot of the time. I'm listening for where yeah. footsteps are. And oh, yeah. I had no idea the spatial element had become, you know, yeah, such a um, such a huge part of it. The, the, we'll get back onto that, because the thing I was in about 2042 was I went onto Steam to get it, because they said, you have to get on this. We'll, we'll, you know, it's a great discount. And it was like reviews had been mostly negative. Yeah. And, you know, they'd had to do a whole, whole load of overhaul and redesign. I don't really understand why, but the point is... That must be devastating to uh, have this kind of big, clear community voice just saying, no, try again. And like you said, it's like, oh, we've done five, six years already on this and we yeah. thought we had it all worked out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's never a, we thought we had it all worked out because we always, every time they like cut us off and they start shipping, you're like, oh God, there's so much still we want to do or, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it kills you a little bit. But um, it was... Yeah, I, I hear you. It's basically exactly that. And the funny thing is, I bet when you played that game, you're like, this is great. Yeah. You know, you're like, what's everyone complaining about? You know, and it's, um, you know, there are certain things that I think are mistakes that developers made. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into it too much. Not developers, actually, publishers, where mm-hmm. they, they try too hard to squeeze cash out of a game without realizing that, like, you know, delivering something that's high quality is going to be way better long-term for your brand than like delivering something that's like mediocre, but you know, you paint it up a lot, you doll it up and you market the heck out of it. And then, you know, you sell a whole bunch of, you know, you make everybody buy a ton of microtransactions. Like if you're, you're just making everything harder for long-term. And I get that it's great for um, short-term profits, but I do really feel like it damages the, you know, it puts a real, um, yeah, stain on your rep for long term. And I'm I'm personally of the I really prefer let's ship something high quality, let's do high quality work that people talk about for years and get excited about and they go, Oh, it's this studio, I'm gonna buy that game because every time I played a game by this studio, it's amazing. Yes, you know? yes. Yeah. You know, like uh I, like the I, I suppose again, I'm not so into gaming that I'm willing to take this. Uh, I'd put all my money on this, but I'm guessing that like Valve, for example, are a studio yeah. with an ironclad reputation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for a really long time and to, to a large degree still, Blizzard, you know, Blizzard, Naughty Dog, you know, Naughty Dog releases a game or Sony Santa Monica, you know, like everyone's playing that. Yeah. You know, and uh, um, yeah, it's it's really cool. And, and I, you know, I'd love... I think the challenge is when you have a, a property um, that has a past like Gears of War, um, people really kind of view it through rose-colored glasses and they're, they're really attached to the experiences they had. Um, so, and you've got half the, you know, you've got half the fans clamoring for something new and then half the fans hate that you change something. And so yeah, it's, a real, it's a real challenge there. Um, but I think, I think the coalition um, has done an incredible job on those games and continues to do it. And I can tell you that every single member of that team cares and they care more than any of the players. Um, you know, and so like the, the number of long meetings and arguments that are had over like, you know, certain changes, um, it gets talked about a lot and, uh, yeah, these changes are not made lightly. So, no. Um, yeah, I feel I feel really lucky to be involved with that. There's such an amazing team to work with. Um, 
Yeah, and similarly, you know, working with the Minecraft team, they're phenomenal. Disney has been amazing. Um, so incredibly supportive. And, uh, and it's so cool because when you work with Disney, you know, they're extremely rightfully um, careful about how their IP is represented. So, you know, music for a certain level that's like, hey, this is Agrabah from um, uh, Aladdin. Yeah. You know, it has to sound a certain way without sounding too much like the original composer because, you know, that's a different, that's a different legal conversation if you're, oh, if yes. you're starting to ape the original composer. So, yeah, um, yeah it, you know, and, and the sounds for the characters and all of that, it just, but what was great about it is that feedback and this is another, this comes back to the things you learn. The feedback is such a gift because um, it makes you better and it helps you see their perspective and understand what their priorities are. And if you, the number one thing you can do is understand what their priorities are. Um, because if you understand that and if you're shooting for that, then two magical things happen. One is you get a really great result because you're all thinking about the same thing. And more importantly, they start to trust you. Yeah. Because, you know, as, as a creative, I'm sure you've had the experience of like, hey, you hand off something to somebody and you don't know if they can do it and they don't know if they're going to represent your ideas or represent your vision or represent you yeah. well. And that's terrifying, you know. But, but so the number one thing, because I've, I've had that thing, you know, when I'm working on music and I, and I hand off something to somebody or I hand off the sound design to somebody and say, okay, go with this. It was a really hard thing to learn to let go of like, Always no, I want to, yeah, I want yeah. to control everything. Um, but it's even harder when your IP is beloved by, you know, not millions, but billions of fans. And that's what we're yeah. talking about with Disney. You know, yes. they, there are billions of fans. And if you mess that up, there's going to be a lot of angry people and the, the impacts to your bottom line can be huge. So, um, earning their trust and earning any client's trust is the number one thing. And the best thing you can do to do that is to demonstrate that you are listening and understanding and acting on their priorities, what they want, what they care about. So there's this, the, the, the golden um, result, the kind of the most desirable outcome is when, so there's what your client, I don't know, doing hand gestures here, there's what your client is uh, asking of you and, yeah. you know, keeping their interests at heart. There's keeping the, the actual gameplay experience of the end user at heart. So if you can get those two things lined up, that's a good balance. And if you can also be satisfied by the work you're making, you get this kind yeah. of really glorious through line where everyone's happy. Yeah, yeah. And and you know what's what's great is that when you truly understand their perspective and you take their feedback and you, you know, you run with it. Um, so I'll give you an example. I, I had submitted some stuff for the main theme of this Mirrorverse game for Disney mm -hmm. and I was pretty stoked about it, you know, and they were not, you know, they were like, it's nice music, but it's not Disney. And I was like, and prepare oh, God. people who aren't yet working composers for that will happen a lot. And it never gets Daily. easier, right? Yeah. No, Daily. you, so, so yeah, develop a thick skin, and just know that, you know, it's it's such a cliche, but feedback is a gift. It will make yeah. you better. They're going to you know? tell you why you suck and then you don't have to suck as much. Yeah. And, you know, if you're lucky, you get to work with people who are who are 
you know, not jerks during the feedback yeah. thing. But yeah. some people will be total jerks during the feedback. And it's not because they hate you and it's not because they're jerks, actually. It's because they're really stressed out and they've yeah. got their own incredible weight <laughs> on them of having to deliver this final project and like all these stresses. And if you're not delivering what they need, you just added to that stress. So, yes. you know, the number one thing you can do is subtract from their stress. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and, so I got this feedback um, and they paired me with one of their kind of internal composers who's this super experienced guy, um, Ariel Mann, absolutely brilliant composer and great guy. Uh, and he gave me some of the best, most specific feedback I've ever received in my career. And I, what we ended up with as a result of that, I was, in, I was so proud of, you know, and it, and I, by listening, and when he first was giving me the feedback, I was just like, oh God, you know, and, and, and not, not because of the way he gave it, because he, he gave it in such a lovely and professional way. But I was just like, oh man, I'm failing all over the place. And it's like, no, you just, you approached it with one perspective and they're giving you a different perspective. Um, and he, yeah, he taught me a whole bunch of stuff and it literally made me a better composer for every piece that I've written since. Um, and it, yeah, it was so, it was so cool. It was such a, it was such a gift to get to have that experience. Uh, and the end result was far better. Um, you mentioned stress tolerance being a, oh yeah, key, a key component. So yeah. I know, we, I know we're not allowed to actually go in depth and talk about this just to briefly brush over and mention it as you have done that Minecraft legends is coming out this year Yes, and that lion's head has been deeply involved. Like if you delivered the full audio package. Yeah. So we've, um, I, 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 don't know if I can tell you that actually, uh, but I can tell you that we've delivered um, all of the music and they just, they just released a little mini dev diary covering the music and sound um, with some of us in it. So it's myself and uh, Blackbird, who is the main developer and Mo Yang, uh, their audio leads. Um, well, Mo Yang has their audio director, Samuel, and uh, Blackbird's um, audio lead, uh, Sashin Reddy. Um, both amazing guys who I now consider good friends. Yeah. Um, it's been such a pleasure to work with them. Um, How long has yeah. the process been? It has been a while. Um, again, I'm not really sure if I'm allowed to say, but it's been multiple years. Let's just say that. Okay, let's let's pull the brakes yeah. on it there then. And the main yeah. thing to talk about is it's going to come out this year. What it's coming it? out in April. Um, April. And yeah, and it was really exciting because we, you know, we have a, big orchestral score and we recorded it at Abbey Road with the London uh, symphony players. Um, so technically it's not the London symphony, but it's players that, you know, play in the London symphony and the London Philharmonia and all, basically the best players in the world. Um, and they played on it. And that was a truly spectacular experience. Never had One of those where like you, you have the constituent elements. So even though it's not the LSO, it basically is. Kind of. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, the the important thing is they are widely considered the best players in the world. Although some would argue that uh, some of the LA Film Orchestra players are as good or better, but it's 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 sort of half and half. I I really love London; they're exceptional. So, but the fact is, you've got a major game shipping this year, um, and. Um... You know, you have mentioned a lot that you have to leave your ego at the door at all stages all of times. the development process. Yeah. You know, so you you aren't the star. It's not about you getting a shining moment when you're a kind no. of composer for media or for games or for anything like that. So make sure you're serving, you know, your client and your end user 
you know, yeah. and make sure that whoever eventually receives this in their eyes and ears Absolutely. is grateful that happened. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's it like by serving the end user, you are serving your client, yeah. you know, and it's so very rare that those things come at odds to each other. Um, but, you know, occasionally you have to make a call because the client is serving a longer term goal. Um, so you might disagree. You might be like, this is the users are not going to like this, but you know, you have to respect that they have a, they have a much clearer and more intimate picture of their situation and their process and their goals than you do. So you, you know, you have to trust them. In the same way that we, we, you know, we were talking about mixing at the start and, um, you, uh, you were in bands and did you ever get the privilege of going into a studio, trying to make a record with a band? Um, not with one of mine. Uh, never, we were never that good. Um, but, uh, the, I did go into a studio with a band that I was kind of helping out with. Um, you know, I've done, I've done, I've been in studio lots in, in, and also during the process of, you know, doing need for speed music and other music, you know, we'd go into the studio and record and mix and all that stuff. So definitely been there for lots of studio time, but not, not so much in a band unless we're talking about the stuff that I've recorded and produced for, you know, friends and stuff yeah. like that. So, well, there is a, there is a phenomenon that's well known to, um, yeah, producers who worked with bands in the, sort of the latter half of the 20th century. And that's a kind of me loudest mix. Uh, oh yeah. Philosophy. yeah. It's like, I can't really hear the, enough of the bass there. It's like, I know, but which would, you know, it, it's not, or it's not the most important thing right here. Maybe the kick yeah. drum is emotionally more important at this point. Um, you're, and so you, a good producer, I think, uh, not that I am one, uh, learns to think of the stereo mix. That's the, in, you, we said the mix is another instrument, right? That's mm. the actual thing that you're perceiving. And so does the mix have enough low end? It's like, no, well, where are you going to get it from and put some in, you know, yeah. does it need to be sustained or does it need yep. impact? And you're not thinking about drums and about bass, but you're thinking about the low end. And so it's the same um, with regards to the experience of producing, uh, you know, a video game, you're not there thinking the music has to be the most important thing. You're like, the music has to serve the player. And if one day they talk about the music being good, then that's a great privilege, but you can't be thinking that with the end in mind, like I'm, I'm going to carve no. my legacy here. Like, yeah, no, absolutely not. And, you know, so I'm both the composer and the audio director of Minecraft legends. And, um, you know, there's many times where I will say, turn down the music because it's it, like that's not important right now or it's too loud and it's because the number one thing that in the moment to moment that we have to communicate is gameplay and you know legends i mean it's known now because you've seen there's been lots of footage online it's basically an action rts mm -hmm. um and so there's a lot of stuff that happens at the same time on the screen and you you can't have your eyes everywhere at once there can be stuff happening all around and behind you so we need to make sure that key sounds will cue the player. Oh shoot! I've got to turn around and deal with this thing, or oh, they're doing that now. Okay, I better, I better like create a, a counter attack or you know some kind of appropriate defense. But I'll tell you one thing that really struck out to me where I where I realized like, okay, cool, I've got a handle on this ego thing, or or just you know I'm prioritizing a little better than in the past was I was working on this film a few years ago called The Shipment. Um, and we were in the mix and I was just the composer, but we were in the mix um, at the soundstage. And, uh, and I basically told them to kill a piece of music and the, the mixer couldn't believe it. 
And I was like, like just just kill it or pull it way never out say because that. It's... composers are always like keep make more. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, but you know, and part of that was like there was this other part where I was like, the music definitely needs to come up. So like you know, but I was I was thinking more as audio director and and like than as a composer because at that stage that's what's important. And um, and the mixer turned to me. He's like, I've never ever had a composer tell me to kill a piece of music before and it's like yeah. i'm not a composer right now that's not my that's not my role in this room right now so, so it's great to be able to wear multiple hats because it stops you obsessing over one part of it too much yeah and this is this comes back to why why i really recommend that composers wanting to get in it to do the sound design because you learn all those roles and priorities in the yeah. way that's far better than what you'll learn as just a composer alone now that's not you know as you pointed out early on there's no one clear path so you don't have to do it the way I did it. I just found that that path has served me really well. Um, in, uh, you know, one of the things that we often deal with is, you know, you get a composer, they deliver music and you're like, okay, we got to change everything because it's, it's so busy. And I, my choices are either turn it down and so you barely hear it or, you know, or we leave it up and then we can't hear all the important stuff that's happening in the game. Yeah. So, you know, you need to, you need to, remix or rewrite you need to choose different instruments etc and i'm lucky because when i'm writing the music i already know that i already know yeah. that in advance i know what's going to be happening in the game or i have an idea or at least i know to ask and yeah. i you know i'll cooperate with the sound designers and be like hey you know what are you thinking for this um you know are you thinking like a lot of big mid-range stuff or you know what's what's the thoughts here and I'll try and make sure I stay out of that range. Or, you know, how often are we hearing these types of sound? Mm -hmm. Cool. So I can be in this range just a little bit here and there, but I can't be constant and so on and so forth. I mean, that's a real privilege that I, uh, uh, you know, hope to experience one day that, you know, you're working on a big team where all the other people have the same, like, nerdy obsessions that you do. And you can just talk to them. You know, uh, we once, it happened once we were working on a Pizza Hut commercial and the post uh, mix engineer, a great guy called Munzee down at Grand Central in London, um, just comes on to say, oh, no, I'm going to be doing this with the sound, so the music needs to... And, and we just talked about, you know, frequencies. It's like, oh, it's like, so voice is going to be at 400, so I can back off it. And uh, the creatives who were also sort of on the Zoom call, because everyone has to be on a call, even if they're not Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they were like, I don't... What Do you speak your own language there? What are you talking yeah. about? You know, <laughs> nice. Like, so yeah. you, and you, you get that all the time because you're working on these big teams where sound design is dovetailing with music and with voice. And, you know, we, we, we deliver this masterclass to agencies in London. And again, it's mostly a learning experience. It's, it's more to learn stuff than to tell stuff that we already know. And one thing we found was that, um, let's say, older films and, you know, the great music of John Williams um, appeared to be, and I could be wrong about this, but it appeared to be composed around the locked edit. So you knew when there was going to be dialogue, so you would leave music out for those bits and yep. then have your big moments on the other side. feels less the case now. It feels like, you know, music's composed before the edit is locked and you have to be able to move everything around. So it's a bit less, it's a bit less uh, melodically intrusive, let's say. You know, melody is a much, much lesser part of movie soundtracks than it used to be, but it could be general. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I know... I, I partly think that, you know, some of that is just a matter of like style. I think, I think culturally, you know, and I, I think for a little while early on, um, like in the early 2000s in particular, melody started taking a bat seat because it was yeah. like considered old fashioned, you know, right. and, uh, and it was more about interest. Movie. Yeah, it was more about like interesting textures and like, and just like, here's a general emotion, but we're not getting bespoke with leitmotifs and things like yeah. that. 
Um, I, I'm, I'm a really big fan of like, you know, what feels right for this particular film, game, show or whatever. Does it feel right to have certain melodies? And, and you know, some, some stories and some storytelling is like, you know what, we want to be very subtle and understated. So melody doesn't really have a big place or if there is a melody, it needs to be very simple. Um, and, you know, that's just a certain vibe. And it's, it's really, there's no one prescriptive right or wrong way. It's just like what, you know, the best way is to work with your team and your creative director or your director or whoever and find out, you know, okay, what's your vision and what's the vision for the story? And sometimes they don't know. And mm -hmm. so your job then, in my opinion, is to help them get there and go, yeah. hey, so this is the story I think you're telling. Um, here's one way we could try it uh, that I think would be really powerful. What do you think? And they might just be like, you're out of your mind. Or like, they might be like, hey, that's cool. Let's try that. And then that becomes the thing, you know? And um, that's, I love that. And I, I think, I think one of the things, you know, that's really important is again, it comes down to that compassion and respect for your client's vision, asking those questions early on and helping them clarify that, helping them help you basically. Because a, a lot of times, you know, I've worked with people and they just, they haven't thought about it or they haven't, they haven't written that character in question deeply enough to know, to give you the backstory to be like, okay, this is how I'm going to write that theme. Um, because they've been so focused on all the other parts, right? So you can you can help them by going, hey, so what if we pretend like this is kind of the backstory and we give mm -hmm. that and, you know, and you, you obviously you want to be careful and read the room, read their personality because some people don't want you kind of having input on a story because you're just a composer or whatever. Um, but I, I just find that that comes back to, again, being sensitive to who they are and what's important to them. And, uh, and, you know, just say, Hey, you know, if this is helpful, um, do you want to hear this idea? Uh, yeah. or, you know, it, and sometimes you just can't get answers. And so you just do your best with what you've got. Yes. Yes. The world isn't always waiting for you to like fix it and put it right. It's like, absolutely. You know, you, yeah. Yeah. Um, how much uh, How much time do you spend on, on pre-production uh, when someone, uh, you know, two, okay, so two questions, actually. Um, one, pre-production, how much time, how much uh, effort, what do you do? Um, and so we'll cover that, put a pin in it for a second, because uh, one thing I'd like you to just cover a little bit for, for those out there who, uh, who, who you know, want to be uh, the next Crispin is uh, talk to me about, you know, project pitching and how, how often are you pitching for new business and how competitive is out there? Or do they just hand you a contract and say, you're, you know, you're the team? Um, it's very rare that we get handed a contract and say, you're the team. It's, if, if it happens, it's usually because we're already working with them um, and we've just completed another project and they're like, hey, here's our next project. You ready? Um, but the, the thing that, Honestly, it's, it's, it's different with every client, different with every mm -hmm. project. And unfortunately, I don't have the time to get into that right now um, <laughs> because I have to, I have another meeting in five minutes. So oh, wow. yeah, I, I have to, I have to roll out and um, uh, jam some lunch into my face, but uh, okay. yeah, it's, it, yeah. Pitching is important, but again, I always approach it from trying to understand as much as I can what they care about and what they're doing and what, you know, what's the story they're telling. Um, and, you know, story is not just, 
hey, character X said this to character Y and this conflict happened and here's their arc over the whole thing. Story happens also moment to moment in gameplay. And like, you know, in those moments when you're jumping and gliding or like, you know, kicking or punching or shooting or whatever, even that is part of a story. There's a character how, to how that is. And, and when a team is working really well together, you know, the animation team, the design team and the narrative, they're all serving each other. And so it creates a cohesive thing, you know, like, so for example, I think um, the gameplay in God of War beautifully tells the story of Kratos and who he is. And, and that's down to like, you know, Corey Barlog is just such an incredible designer, um, but the, the story as well and, and the animation team, the animation team has done such an incredible job on that game of like, you know, making how he moves and what he does feel like, yeah, this is all true to his character and this is all true to this story that's happening right now. Similarly, you know, when we work on Gears, um, the animation of the gears, like the, the characters themselves, they have a weight to them that, that says like, these are, you know, incredible soldiers and everything's heavy and everything's gritty and tough and dangerous and scary. And it's in how they move as well. And it's in, it's in the gameplay. The, the gameplay loops feel that way. And I just, I love that. And I think that, you know, if you, if you can start looking for those kinds of things, it'll really help you direct yourself in your own sound design and in your music composition. Well, you know, this, as we've said, could go on for much longer. I hope it could anyway, because I feel like we're learning, I'm learning a lot, but uh, obviously I forget it's 9.30 p.m. here. It's 1.30 p.m., I think, Correct. over in yeah. British Columbia. You've given us a lot of time. Uh, he's Crispin Hands. He is the director of Lion's Head Pro, and uh, he is a firm believer in don't have a fixed path, in uh, make sure you're always learning wherever you are. There's always something to learn. Uh, keep the uh, end user in mind and everything will go well. What are the other gold nuggets of information we've had here? I can't quite remember. But I think mostly just, you know, really uh, listen to, respect and serve your clients. Have compassion for them because they're, you know, they have all their own pressures and anxieties and your job is to, to take some of that away. And you wouldn't always want to switch places with them. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. I'm not good at what they're doing. I, I you know, I, I'm barely good at what I'm doing. So I'm going to stay right here. Of course. Yeah. It's been great, Crispin. I hope we can do it again Likewise. sometime. If, if you're ever back in, in, in London at Abbey Road, give us a shout and we'll come get you a beer. <laughs> Lovely. Excellent stuff. Cheers. Right. Have a great day. We'll speak you again. You too.